0: Yeah, Thomas Francis Maher may be the most famous Irish-American.
1: Coming up next on Conversations, National Book Award winning author Tim Egan talks about his latest book, The Immortal Irishman, the Irish revolutionary who became an American hero.
0: He sees his destiny, which he's always looking for, he wants to make a dent in history. He sees his destiny as to help the Irish become full, dignified human beings.
1: Tim Egan on the life and times of Thomas Marr, the Irish migration to America, and how this fascinating story has a timely connection to the immigration debate in the U.S. today.
0: And next time you hear a candidate say, these Mexicans, they're rapists, they're murderers, just substitute Mexicans for Irish, and you would have the very same speeches that people gave in the 1840s and the 1850s about Thomas Marr
1: and his people. I'm Enrique Cerna. And this is Conversations. Tim Egan, good to have you here.
0: Great to be with you, Enrique.
1: Well, you're Irish-American, but uh, I I find it interesting that you were unaware of this immortal Irishman, Thomas Marr. True?
0: Yeah, Thomas Francis Marr may be um, the most famous Irish-American. I mean, this guy had his... It was part of every single epoch of Irish American history. And going back to the famine, going back to banishment to Australia, going back to immigration, going back to fighting the know-nothings, going to the Civil War, going to the settling of the West, all these things that figure in this first big wave of ethnic history in America, this guy is at the center of it. And I knew nothing about him. How did you find out? In the capital of Montana, in Helena, on the Capitol grounds, is this giant equestrian statue of this gentleman with his sword in the air and written at the base of this are these most defiant words, defiant against the British Empire. And I'm like, what the hell (laughs) is this thing doing, you know, defying the Brits in the middle of the Montana capital? And so I'm walking with the Montana governor, then Governor Brian Schweitzer, some years ago, and I said, "Who the hell is this?" And he says, "You call yourself an Irish American, <laughs> and you don't know who Thomas Francis Mar is." And that sort of, you know, stuck in the back of my mind. And you know, as authors do, you sort of let these things grow and you cogitate on them. And, and I started to look into his history, and I thought, "Holy cow, this guy! What, what a what a story! I mean, uh, I've seen some of the earlier reviews on this book, and people say you just..." If this was fiction, you just wouldn't believe it. He's lived so many lives in his short period of time.
1: Very short period of time. Yeah, died and, at the age of forty three, right? And this was a guy. let's let's talk about his history um, because it really coincides with a lot of the history of Ireland and also the Irish coming to America. Um, but take me back and and he he was a pretty stubborn guy. <laughs>
0: Right, he really was, and very eloquent too. He was at a time when most Irish were poor, when most Irish did not own their own land, when most Irish could not vote, when most Irish were often hungry, when most Irish were ill-educated, he was none of that. He was a nobleman's son, prince of, they called him the Prince of Waterford. He had everything, although he was Catholic and Catholicism still was not granted full rights. You could not sit in parliament, you could not vote uh, if you were Irish Catholic, which is what 80% of the people were. but you know, he's, he could have had this path of, of genteel aristocracy if he'd, Ireland was then part of Great Britain, he went to this great school, but he comes back to Ireland and, and starts his adult life in 1843 on the eve of the greatest catastrophe ever to sit, hit Ireland. That is the Great Famine. And there's been a lot of new scholarship on this, Enrique, a lot of new stuff that's come out now that show that it was actually more like extermination, which is what the British called it, the policy of extermination. We would call it genocide. A million Irish died in four years time. That's one in eight of the population died. They fell to these roadsides with their teeth stained green from chewing on dandelions. mothers were found in these hovels still holding their children, both of them dead. They would show up at these poor houses and just uh, contact contract a, a disease there and die there and the British looked at it as a way to call this surplus population they were their families were too big they were families of and eight. they hated the Irish. Absolutely. I mean, it it goes back 800 years. They considered them subhuman. They were a mongrel race. They were drunks. They were, you know, Catholics. They were this, they were Celts. They were Catholics. They were everything the Brits weren't. And what's interesting about that, let me just put this in perspective, and this goes back to a book I wrote on Edward Curtis. Curtis was a guy trying to um, capture American Indian culture at the time it was being erased. And here I'm writing this book about a uh, people who were deprived of their religion. It was a, it was a crime to be an American Indian and practice your religion in certain places, a crime to speak your language. They would ship them off to these Indian schools, um, a crime to be to have any full citizenship, a crime to own land. All of that was in place in Ireland. It, it was a crime for all of those. So they tried to strip them of every. Even the sports were outlawed. It was a crime to practice hurling. hurling. Yeah, you could you could find an Irishman for writing a horse the wrong way if you didn't ride it the British way. So everything they did was designed to strip away culture and identity. And Thomas Marr comes of age when when this is ending, when this has gone on, and the Great Famine is ending. And the famine to him is the the, the pinnacle. It's the ultimate, it's a manifestation of all the wrongs that Britain has done to these subject people.
1: Because not only was the potato blight, a disease that had come in and had destroyed the potato... uh, all of the farms and what people were growing there. But England and the Brits, they had the food to be able to feed people and this famine didn't need to happen so I that was, goes back I, to I'm so glad, their glad you brought, brought yeah. that up
0: because that's what's come out in the recent scholarship right. i mean the irish just didn't talk about the famine it was a shameful thing and in the last 20 years there's been so much new information about what happened it, and all these documents have been unearthed and it turns out they exported yes the the potato was at was the basis of it because most irish peasants that is 80% of irish lived off you know what they could get on their acre of they really would live for a whole year you know on this acres where the potatoes when the blight came and wiped out the potato they had nothing to pay their rent there and then kicked out of their houses. But at the same time, they were growing all this grain, this cereal, raising these hogs, weighing the beef and chickens. Ireland was the number one exporter of meat in the British Empire. So they, they, they had, Thomas Marr helped to lead this uprising where they said, look, why are all these ships leaving Ireland when a million people are dying of starvation? So yes, they exported probably four times as much food as could have fed the starving.
1: We're talking with Tim Egan, the author of The Immortal Irishman, the Irish revolutionary who became an American hero and his name was Thomas Marr. Um, Marr eventually, because he uh, really revolted along with others as to what was going on here, got himself into deep trouble.
0: If you want to say being sentenced to be hanged, drawn and quartered, (laughs) and (laughs) your remains disposed of as her majesty sees fit, He's 24 years old, and that's the the sentence he's gotten for this uprising. He never fired a shot. He never raised a hand, but he helped the populace to rise up and said, we must throw off British rule or we will all starve. Ireland would be a graveyard. So for this, he's sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. And he sits in jail with his fellow young Ireland, that's what the movement was called, and waits for his neck to be snapped. And while he's doing that, he writes poetry, writes letters, he was so full of life still, and on uh, after waiting for almost a year, young Queen Victoria, who is his age, in her 20s, commutes the sentence, you're not gonna be hanged, drawn, and quartered, but you're gonna spend the rest of your life on the British penal colony island of Tasmania. So he now, the second part of his life happens, he's being, shen- where, by the way, Australia, as you know, was founded as a penal colony. They tried to make a cage out of a continent. One in four people sent to Australia during the hundred odd years when they established it as a penal colony were Irish. And the political prisoners, of whom Mar was one, were sent to the special hell, which was Tasmania.
1: Didn't he make a speech um, that actually brought out this public outcry, not only from the people in Ireland, it was also in England, but in the U.S.? globally he hope was, to save his life
0: right exactly he made a speech that uh... many an irish american many an irish australian many an irish englishman many an irish schoolchild school child can recite by heart when he was sentenced, he gave this speech saying, um, the history of Ireland explains my crimes. The history of British rule explains my crimes. I have committed no crime. And it was it's sort of in the great tradition of Irish orators. He was considered the greatest orator of his time. And that's what he was sentenced to. They thought by banishing him then to Tasmania, we would never hear of Thomas up, Francis Maher again. He was gone, he was at the edge of the world. I mean, Enrique, this is 14,000 miles from Ireland. In the in the Victorian age and it's it's the other end of the world
1: So he's there he has In being shipped there. He made a commitment that he wouldn't try to escape or do anything But he does
0: right. It's this really weird Victorian code of honor They would let him not be in a prison and have a little farm in the island on the island of Tasmania along with the other political prisoners if he would agree by his code never to escape And he couldn't meet his fellow prisoners. These were people in their 20s, but they found a way to meet at their little junctions and they would have lunch and they would do all these things. He eventually marries a girl there too. Um, You know, again, this is a man in his 20s who's trying to craft a life far, far, far from home. He feels so lonely. And this is the most brilliant orator of his day and he has no one to talk to. So he eventually does plot his escape. And um, after almost three years in Tasmania, he has this extraordinary escape. It involves about 10 days of dodging sharks in the Bass Strait, right off of uh, the strait that runs between the mainland and Tasmania, and finds his way to America. And there in um, 1852, he gets a hero's welcome. In some cases, they... Compare him to Jesus, he's a savior. They said, this is the man who will come and unite the Irish masses in America. These masses are there because of the famine as well. Those who didn't die are washed ashore in America and more than a million of them come ashore in the four years following the famine.
1: So does he make it to New York then? He makes it from
0: Tasmania to New York City and he arrives on the Lower East Side. I have a scene in the book where um, he walks the Lower East Side and he just can't believe it. It's Dublin on the Hudson. He hears more Gaelic there than he's heard since he left Ireland. But it's not a pretty sight. Um, it's, it's very awful. These Irish are living in these tenements with little pots to pee in. Um, they have crappy jobs. They, um, they fill the jails. And you know the term hooligan, and you know the term paddy wagon. That comes from those days when the cops would just sweep the Irish off the streets and put them in jail, a host of petty crimes. they are a poor rural people who are suddenly making up 40% of the population of New York City. And he arrives and sees all this. He's like, he's, he's impressed to see so many Irish have survived the famine and come ashore in New York, but he's appalled at the conditions. They're just living in total misery and poverty. And he said, why would they leave beautiful Ireland for this, I mean, you have families of four living in a hundred square foot tenements.
1: So, how did he then get involved with politics, and then trying to um, get the movement going? In? So,
0: he makes it his his goal to rise to help the Irish rise up from this horrible poverty they've gotten, primarily in New York City. And in short time, he becomes the most prominent of all the exiles, the Irish exiles in Ireland. He gives speeches to full houses. I mean, he packs you know, 10,000 people in, and gives a speech, and the New York Times runs it up as a huge story. Um, he starts a newspaper and becomes an port- important voice there. There are these Thomas Marr clubs that pop over all over America. There's a polka in his honor. I mean, again, they, they see him as the savior and he sees his destiny which he's always looking for. He wants to make a dent in history. He sees his destiny as to help the Irish become full, dignified human beings, to have some dignity. They've never had this. They've never had anything, either in Ireland or here. And he doesn't know how what that destiny is going to be. He thinks maybe they'll, they'll he'll... Organize an army, and they'll go back to Ireland and free them from the Brits. He doesn't know what this will be.
1: But that's his his ultimate goal, is to try to go back to Ireland. Exactly,
0: exactly. And this fascinating thing about history, his destiny comes
1: along, but in an entirely different shape. So eventually comes along the Civil War. Exactly. And he um, uh, becomes a part of the uh, Union
0: Army. When the Civil War breaks out, it's unsure which side the Irish will be on. And remember, there's now two million of them living in the U.S. There's a whole party that's been founded in opposition to them called the Know Nothing Party, which at one point is the second biggest political party in the United States. They're established for one reason only, to keep the Irish from getting citizenship, to deny them citizenship. You see it very similar to what's going on today. They pass all these rules to make it impossible for an Irish American to become a citizen, let alone serve in an American army. So when the Civil War breaks out, it's a real big question. You know, they're told that if these blacks are freed, they'll come north and take your jobs. You don't want these people taking your jobs. So there's a real racist contingent. There's a real demagogical contingent. The South stokes this. The slaveholders stoke this. And no one really knows which side Mar will be on. A significant portion of the Irish community does side with the South. But he declares, this is the country that gave me refuge. This is the country that gave me solace. This is the country that took us Irish in after our biggest catastrophe. How could we fight for any side but the Union? And he's sort of an agnostic on slavery. So Lincoln names him a Union general. And he starts... The Irish Brigade, an entirely ethnic group, primarily New Yorkers, but there's Boston, there's people from Maine, there's people from Philadelphia. It's a brigade made up entirely of Irish Americans, and people say, well, these fools, they can't organize a parade, let alone a union, you know, going to go into, go into the, um, the war. Uh, and they end up fighting in the most iconic battles of the Civil War, starting at Bull Run, uh, Antietam, where, in which um, 25,000 American casualties happen on one day. It's the bloodiest single day in American history. Fredericksburg, where they put these green sprigs into their caps when they storm up the, um, the heights against the slaveholders. Every wave mows them down. They lose 50% of the brigade in that one battle alone at Fredericksburg. Um, he wanted them, when they died, for people to know who they were. That when they turned over this dead body, they would find this little green sprig in their caps their caps to the forage caps that the Union Army were so they they go into battle they prove themselves terrific warriors in fact uh, General Lee says I never saw people fight on the Union side this is General Lee the Southern general Robert E Lee says I never saw we were there were only one brigade we were really afraid of it was the Irish they fought like maniacs but the, the toll
1: was horrible just absolutely horrible which also put him in a bad way when he, Came back to try to recruit others to still exactly. Be
0: I'm glad you brought that up. So the Irish sort of turn against the war because they're taking really big casualties, and Mar had led them in on this promise that we will go to war against the slaveholding South, but then, as seasoned soldiers, we'll go across the Atlantic and we'll liberate our homeland. So that was the promise, but all they see are dead bodies, and the um, and then the the worst thing that happens is the New York draft riots. So. You know, we, we institute a draft in late 1862, early 1863, 1863, first time in our history. And if you're rich, you can buy your way out. So the rich don't get drafted. It costs $200. $200, It's fair, it's not, not fair, but it's legal. You can do one of two things. You can buy your way out of the draft for 200 bucks, or you can bring a body, in which case they would pay somebody to go sand. So the rich don't fight this, but who fights in the draft? Prim- who gets drafted? Primarily the Irish. So there are these horrible riots. To this day, people think they're the worst riots in American history. Those are the draft riots in New York City, in which it, they go on for a week. And they're just really horrible. And Mar is disgusted. He's disgusted seeing Irish involved with this because they went after blacks. and they, he's uh,
1: So that's just his low ebb. Kind of reminds me from the scene of uh, you know the gangs in New York and the five points. That scene the, yeah. is is from the draft riots. Right.
0: That's the pinnacle. That's exact. five points is where he's from, is where the tenements are, and that that's exactly right. And that scene is accurate. That's what it was like. So Marr is still saying, you know, we can become Americans. We can become part of this country. Remember, the immigrant experience is new, Enrique. It, the, the Irish are the first ethnic wave. There's are Germans who are coming and Jews at the same time, but not as many as this one group. So we now know the immigrant experience is wave after wave, but this is the first... Dilution of WASP America, and they can't handle it. Celts and Catholics. They drink, they sing, they talk loud. They all these things they do. They have big families. Um, they do in you know sort of they stand out. And so, the Civil War was a way to make them American, and that's what Marx says. We will give our blood, and by giving our blood, they'll see us as citizens. But again, it, it sort of breaks down because the, the draft riots happen, and he's appalled by that, and. Um, in the end, he realizes, he comes to a realization that they don't, that he, all these loss, this loss of life was not to free Ireland. It was to free the slaves of America. And he embraces that. He, he, he gives speeches saying, this is what we sacrificed for. We didn't free Ireland. And he becomes... Really, he really changes. He goes from being an agnostic on slavery to being someone who's ahead of most of the country, and certainly most of his Irish. He's in favor of the 13th Amendment. He wants blacks to have full citizenship. See, it was one thing to free the slaves. It was another thing to give them full citizenship. So he sort of loses favor.
1: You know, it's kind of interesting as you describe all of this, and, and in the book, you, you, you really do a great job of detailing the history. They remind me of how... Uh, the American Indian has been treated, right. how blacks in America have been treated, uh, how other ethnic minority groups have also been
0: treated. I, I'm really glad you brought this up because one of the reasons I wrote this book is not just because it's a rip-roaring yarn. I th- yeah. think it is a great <laughs> yarn. It is a great yarn. Yeah. yeah. I think it really informs the present. I think that um, there are Irish-Americans among us who have forgotten our history. I think there are people who don't know we were treated like crap. That you know our people, and I'm Irish American on both sides of my family, so I say our people. Uh, you see commentators today who go after you know Latinos, and they forget that those were the Irish of hundred years ago. And so I really, I really think it's important to, to to use history, to use a good story like this to say this is a recurrent theme. It's just that the Irish were the first to do this, and they put up, excuse me, they were, they ran into. Every single thing you see when I hear Donald Trump talk about deporting the Irish, they excuse deporting the Latinos, Latinos right? They said the exact. They had they actually had pogroms in Philadelphia. They burned the churches down, and that you know they would go and say, "Put these Irish scum back on the ships and get them out of here." We don't the equivalent of a wall today. So it's it's really interesting to read this, and I've heard from people who've seen the early advance review of the book, and they say, "God, this here is our."
1: No, the, the timeliness yeah. on this, it, if you look at past history and what some people are saying now, obviously, the Republican presidential candidates like a Trump or a Cruz, you know, uh, espousing some of these things that, you know, are hard, hard to listen to. Right. But it it's like history again, uh, right. repeating itself.
0: It's history repeating itself very much so. And it's also. Our struggle, that is America's struggle. We are, we are this nation of immigrants. Everyone here is an immigrant but a Native American. But we, we we still we go through these periodic huge fights over what it means to be a nation of immigrants. This was one of them. This was the initial breakthrough. And believe me, um, after the draft riots, I quote from a, a diarist, a Protest, prominent Protestant Anglo lawyer in New York who says, I've come around to the opinion... Of the know nothings that these Irish have no right to belong in America. They are a lo- they are a subhuman, and they used to draw pictures of them, Enrique, with the big brows. They looked like monkeys, and they often had tails, and their their whiskers were in the suds of beer. And you know they were a, they were a people who who couldn't govern themselves. That's why the Brits never gave them self governance. They were drunks. They were all these disparaging, horrible things to say they say about them. And and so it's really important to look at what's happening today and say what's what's going on against Latinos, what's going on against refugees from other countries, say even Syrians, We this is America repeating itself.
1: Right. Talking to uh, Tim Egan, the author of The Immortal Irishman, the Irish, Irish Revolutionary, who became an American hero, and his name was Thomas Marr. Let's get back to him. At this point uh, after the Civil War, um, he is trying to find his next way right and also meets a woman named elizabeth townsend who comes from an upper crust family Mm -hmm. in new york um because of the fact that she's protestant he's irish uh he's not accepted by her family but yet she wants him and she goes with him and she gives up life Uh,
0: another part of the immigrant experience by the way if you marry outside of your ethnic group uh this is what happens there she she she, his wife elizabeth came from a very prominent anglo wasp family and uh, they disowned her for marrying this guy and i have a scene in the book where he writes this letter to her and he just pours his heart out uh this chapter is called identity he's trying he says look i'm a fugitive i'm going to be a fugitive for the rest of my life even though he's a civil war general eventually he says I am wanted by the most powerful empire on earth which at that time ruled 1 in 4 acres on the planet. The Union Jack flew over and he said you know you know what? I have no family. I'm hated by these people, but I love you. And he pours his heart out to this woman. And she becomes his life partner. They're very close. Nurses his wounds back after the Civil War. So he has one more chapter left in his life. This guy who's who's now lived through the famine and was supposed to be hanged, drawn in quarters, is banished to Tasmania where all the, you know, he's supposed to spend the rest of his life, escapes, comes to New York, gets washed in with the immigrant experience, survives the Civil War, to this day our most bloody war, a would Extrapolated the casualties out from then to now, it would be something like 22 million Americans would have died. Part five, the final part, is the American West. He goes to Montana, where he will he and Libby, his wife, where he will be the territorial governor. So you get one more chapter. And given that Mar cannot go into any place without fighting injustice, he runs into that in Montana.
1: Vigilantes in Montana.
0: It turns out, and I didn't really know this. This is the largest episode of vigilante history in American history, which the first five years following the Civil War in Montana Territory, where you had these Freemasons. Again, they were anti-Catholic, anti-Irish, and they just just summarily executed. They would pluck people, their political uh, enemies, people they were accused. There was a Latino gentleman who they strung from a tree and burned him alive. And while he was burning, they came and poked his dead body. Um, Marr was appalled by this. He goes to Montana. He sees, a, he sees this horrible lawlessness that this little cabal of right-thinking citizens are running the territory in absolute violation of the American constitution. People are strung up without a trial, without so much as they're being told what they're being strung up for. Um, and here's a guy who's was nearly strung up himself. So he has sympathy. And he also, so he tries to bring law to this lawless, you know, this lawless part of the United States. He has one big fight left in him. At the same time, there's this idea to make Montana into something called New Ireland, that... You know if you can get these wretched masses of immigrants out of these cities and i can't stress enough how awful the tenements were i mean there were really horrible disease and pestilence and crime and really no opportunity and mars sees in the wide open west a chance for the irish masses to start fresh so he urges them to come to montana as it turns out my Great grandfather was one of those who came to Montana, who came to so New that's Ireland. That's how the eagles came. That's out That's how West? we came into wow. Butte, Butte, Montana. So really? I think they may have been, even been involved with uh, raising the money for the statue. <laughs> yeah. So, so he he's doing two things. He's trying to establish New Ireland yeah. in the territory, and he runs up against the vigilantes.
1: So he runs up against the vigilantes, and eventually, you know, he's he's having a hard time. Right. And he. Um, his wife is not with him, mm-hmm. although he's hoping to bring her out. Um, and then one night, um, he goes out on this boat, and he mysteriously falls overboard. Right. And everybody says, well, it, it probably it might have been a suicide, or it was an accident. Tell me about this. this really kind of well, they say history. because
0: he was Irish, he was probably drunk. You know, they, they apply the, the stereotype okay. that they always do. This is really interesting because he's only 43 years old, and he's already lived 10 lives, and now he's the territorial governor. And he's got this sort of joyless task. He's supposed to go and raise, get some some armaments from General Tecumseh Sherman, who was one of his rivals, to fight the Indians. And he's he's not up for it. He sees... Somewhat in the Indians, what he sees, what the Irish were in the United States. He really doesn't want to do this, but he's a territorial governor. So he goes to Fort Benton on the Missouri River. And this is, to this day, easily the longest lasting mystery of Montana. It may be one of the biggest mysteries in the West is what happens to him. On this August night, um, he disappears from this ship at anchor in Fort Benton, Montana. And the official story is that, well, he'd had a few, too many to drink, he wasn't feeling well, and he fell off. Well, I, I just don't buy this, and there's no evidence of that. Mar was a very strong swimmer. When he escaped from uh, Tasmania, he was out dodging sharks in the Tasman Sea. He lived next to a river for his entire
1: young and, and life. And had he pretty much given up alcohol? I mean, that, yeah, they had given he, him something because his I stomach mean, was bothering get, him. That
0: night, he was certainly not drinking, and there were four or five witnesses to that effect, too. Um, but his rival... The guy who's the who wanted to be the first senator. And if Mar had run run for the Senate after this, he would have easily been elected because he was extremely popular, and there were a lot of Irish in the territory. Um, If The territory became a state, of course, which it was bound to do, and it did eventually. His political rival, the head of the vigilantes, the guy who had given the order to execute all of these people. Only Sanders. Yeah, Bert, thank you, whose statue still is is inside of the Montana. (laughs) Mars is outside. Sanders is inside, which is one of the really funny things. um, Shows up magically on this last night of his life and is one of the last people to see him and then becomes the guy who tells oh he fell off it's this no there's no witness that he actually fell off fell into the river but his rival the vigilante leader Sanders is the one who says who promotes this story and that's the story that becomes the one in the history book now recently again as with the famine there's been a lot of new information on the death of Thomas Marr and um, a couple years ago they had a mock trial So they assembled a judge and a jury and a prosecutor and called witnesses and they did this fascinating thing very close to as much information as they could gather so like a real trial and they concluded that he'd been murdered by Wilbur Sanders and that's actually I mean I don't want to spoil everything in this book but that's uh, I I try to make a case that Marr was murdered Um, interestingly. The most famous Irish American at all, President John F. Kennedy, when he went to Ireland, I close the book with this, takes Mar's flag from the um, Irish Brigade and takes one of those little sprigs that was in the cap and mentions Thomas Maher and s- talks about the Irish Brigade and what they sacrificed. Kennedy was then assassinated a few years, um, he was only a few years older than Maher. He was our youngest president, our first Irish American president. The second was Barack Obama, whose family is Irish on his mother's side. <laughs> So it's a it's it's interesting to wonder what would have happened had this life been not been cut short. Uh, but he affected so many people. I say, without him, I say that there are free people in Australia, which won its freedom from its penal colony in part because of Marx's writings. He, these guys were writing these subversive tracts to try to get rid of this, of bringing convicts to Australia. Because of him, there are free people in Australia. In part because of him, there are free blacks, because of all the blood they shed and all the battles they were in. Uh, And certainly in part because of him, there's finally a free Ireland. I mean, this is the 100th anniversary of the 1916 Easter Rising, which eventually led to Ireland's freedom. And um, when those rebels took to the barricades, they summoned the words of Thomas Francis Marr.
1: And when President Kennedy made his trip to Ireland and gave a speech, he quoted the words, Thomas Moore.
0: He did, and he said, um, you know, the, the Irish story, as most people will recognize, is is mostly misery, broken by occasional periods of joy. But he said, what is it in the Irish character in the face of this misery? That's the great thing about the Irish character: still finding a reason to cite a poem, still finding some optimism, still finding. You know, something to fight for, something to be proud of, and and so there's a direct link between Kennedy, excuse me, between Marr and Kennedy, and and this year certainly, where Maher is getting his his tributes across the land.
1: This story, again, uh, I think the timeliness of it is is uh, very fascinating, and also I think uh, so important just because of where we are in a presidential campaign and how things uh, uh, are being uh, said and what things are being said about uh, immigrants and about how we're trying to find. uh, We seem to have this division here in the country right now that uh, is is so hard to was. I was reading a
0: Pew survey poll the other day. I couldn't believe it. Almost 40% of Americans, this is astonishing, almost 40% of Americans think immigration is not a good thing. We're a nation of immigrants, I've made this point. Every single one of us going down to the Mayflower, people who could trace their ancestors to that, came from somewhere else. Unless you're Native American, unless you're a descendant of the Duwamish tribe, you are from somewhere else. How could 40% of Americans think that immigration... So we go through these times where we embrace it and we reject it, as I said. Also, um, if you do a little thought experiment and next time you hear a candidate say, these Mexicans, they're rapists, they're murderers, just substitute Mexicans for Irish and you would have the very same speeches that people gave in the 1840s and the 1850s about Thomas Marr and
1: his people. Yeah, how history repeats itself, doesn't it? Tim Egan, the author of The Immortal Irishman, The Irish Revolutionary Who Became an American Hero. His name was Thomas Marr. Tim, thank you so much. A really good book as always, um, really well written, and the history, I hope people that take the time to read this because it is, um, it is it's so educational mm-hmm. for one thing <laughs> to, to understand right. how the Irish uh, what they went through and how they came to America and how a guy like Tom Thomas Marr um, really uh, uh, stood up for his people. And it always seems that th- that has to be the case. that Somebody has to take a stand. Great. Yeah, well, well thanks that. for having me. I really right. enjoyed it. Tim Egan, thank awesome. you very much. And we'll talk more next time.